Our second reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Hear the word of God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father God, we ask uh, for your help uh, this morning as we dig into your word. We pray that uh, you would be present here uh, in this sanctuary. Um, Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what it is that you have for us this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So for 30 years I have uh, been part of a secular men's group that's called the Rascals, Rogues, and Rapscallions. And these guys get together for dinner every three months and they hear a presentation by one of their members on an obscure topic that has been assigned to them by the group. The last time I had to do a presentation, I reported on the composer of a song that had been popular on American college campuses in the 1880s. It was my chance to be an amateur uh, musicologist, and I had a lot of fun doing it. Once a year, uh, the group gets together for what we call our research reports meeting, at which all of the members gives just a brief update on their current research. A couple of weeks ago, at this year's research reports meeting, uh, there were uh, presentations on backyard mushrooms, on pre-Columbian contact with North America, on the Washington Memorial Chapel at Valley Forge, on the chemistry of pretzels, on a bridge, some say that Ulysses S. Grant had built in California, and on a Pennsylvania Dutch dumpling that you can only buy at the Quakertown Farmer's Market. When our elder Jordan Goretti uh, had his turn to talk, he discussed his ongoing study of the kings of Israel. I don't remember everything that Jordan said, but there was some mention of God's command that the Israelites wipe out all of the Amalekites when they entered into the promised land. The Israelites didn't actually do that, but God's command was pretty clear. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy 25, 17. You must destroy the memory of the Amalekites from the world. You will do this when you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There he will give you rest from all of the enemies around you, but do not forget to destroy the Amalekites. 
After each presentation, there was a time for comments, and a fellow who has been a member of the group for more than 20 years, a chemist from Germany, who recently retired from Johnson & Johnson, he got up and said, you know, I have a real problem with this. If someone is hearing voices and they think that God is telling them to commit genocide, well, that's just crazy. I'm an agnostic, so I don't care what you believe about God, but I'm also a German, so I know something about people who try to exterminate other people. So I have a real problem with this. These so-called holy wars don't seem so holy to me. As you can imagine, the conversation was very lively after this comment. Dr. Moshe Roche had put his finger on a very difficult problem. I sent him an email yesterday to tell him that he would be getting a shout-out in the sermon this morning because our reading from Numbers this morning, we again have a command from God to wipe out an entire people group, this time the Midianites. There are a lot of battles in the Bible, but this one in Numbers 31 is different. This is a holy war. God is using the Israelite army to enact his judgment against the Midianite people. The title of this sermon is Holy War and the Love of God, because we need to be able to make sense of the Bible, which teaches us on the one hand that God is love, and that on the other hand, Moses was angry because the Israelite army did not kill the Midianite women. Now you and I and Dr. Moshe Rosh believe that it is immoral to kill women and children during times of war. And so we have to figure out how to make sense of a God who has ordered the destruction of the Midianites. That's my project this morning. We'll see how we do. By the way, this is a long sermon, okay? Uh, Mark Twain sent in an article to his editor, and he had a note on the article that said, the article's 5,000 words. If I had another two weeks, it would be 2,000 words. So this is a very long sermon. If I had another two weeks to write it, it would be a shorter sermon. Be warned. So let's begin by reviewing uh, what Brother Jordan read for us uh, this morning. The war with the Midianites begins at God's command. Go and attack the Midianites and do to them what they did to you. From the very beginning, we see that this is God's war. Moses didn't come up with the plan. The war wasn't forced on them by an attacking army. It's God's war, and it is a holy war. Moses assembles the troops, 1,000 men from each of the 12 tribes. There is something symbolic in these numbers, equal numbers of soldiers from tribes of unequal size, a nice round 12,000 total soldiers. It is as if Moses is signaling that this army truly represents the nation of Israel. And keep in mind that the nation of Israel is a brand new nation. It was created at Mount Sinai. They don't even have a homeland yet. And with this symbolic army representing the nation of Israel goes Phineas, the high no, yeah, Phineas, the high priest, 
along with the holy things from the tabernacle, probably the Ark of the Covenant, went into this battle. We saw Phineas last in Numbers chapter 25 where he took his spear and killed Zimri and Cosby, an Israelite man and a Midianite woman who were having sex in their tent in plain view of everyone in the Israelite camp. The battle itself in chapter 31 is scarcely described. Verse 7 says they killed all the Midianite men. Verse 49 says, Your servants have counted the men of war who are under our command, and there is not a man missing from us. That is to say, all of the Midianite men were killed, and not a single Israelite man was killed. So this is no ordinary war. This is something supernatural, something weird is going on here. Only six names are mentioned Of all of the men killed, those are the names that we find in verse 8. They're the names of the five Midianite kings plus Balaam. You remember Balaam, the freelance prophet with the talking donkey. We read about Balaam in chapters 22, 23, and 24. And here he comes to his end by the sword in chapter 31. Not only did the Israelite army kill all the Midianite men, they also burned all of their towns and villages, and they took all of their possessions, all of their animals, all of their gold. The women and children were taken as prisoners, and the army returns to the Israelite camp, but instead of being welcomed home like conquering heroes, Moses is angry. Why did you let the women live? is what Moses says in verse 15. And then in verse 17 and verse 18 comes the command, kill all the Midianite boys and all of the Midianite women who have had sexual relations with a man. You can let the young girls live. Okay, so this is horrible stuff. And everything that comes after all of this horrible stuff in chapter 31 is just a description of how the soldiers and their captives and their booty are going to be made ceremonially clean and then distributed among the people. So how do we make sense of this? How do we square this holy war in which all of the men and all of the boys and all of the adult women are killed? And... Not just killed in battle, but in captivity. These are prisoners of war who were killed after the battle is over. How do we square this holy war with our understanding of God as love? I want to first review the relationship between the Midianites and Israel. And then I want to talk about Balaam and the Midianites. And then I want to offer three guardrails in our reading of scripture. So let's talk about Midianites in Israel. The first thing we need to realize is that the Midianites are cousins of the Israelites. Abraham had three wives, Sarah, Hagar, and Keturah. Sarah, Abraham's first wife, is the mother of Isaac, and Isaac is the father of Jacob, and Jacob's name is later changed to Israel, and the Israelites are descendants of Jacob's 12 sons. Hagar, of course, is the handmaid of Sarah, given by Sarah to her husband when Sarah thought she couldn't have any children of her own. And Hagar, of course, then becomes the mother of Ishmael. 
Sarah then expels Hagar and Ishmael from the household of Abraham, and the two of them go off and have a separate life in another place. Later in life, Abraham marries a third woman, Keturah. We meet her in Genesis 25, and she is the mother of Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. So Midian is the half-brother of Isaac, and his descendants are half-cousins of the Israelites. When Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery, it was a group of Midianite traders who bought him and then who took him down into Egypt and then resold him to Potiphar, who was an officer working for Pharaoh. 500 year, 400 years later, Moses kills a man in Egypt and he runs away and he settles amongst the Midianites and he marries Zipporah, a Midianite woman. And as Moses is leading the Israelites during the Exodus, he invites his Midianite brother-in-law, Hobab, to join them and to settle with them in the promised land. But Hobab, Hobab declines the offer and returns to his homeland. That's everything that we know about the Midianites prior to what we've read this morning. So let's talk about Balaam, the guy with the talking donkey. The story of Balaam fills three large chapters, chapter 22, 23, and 24. Here in chapter 31, he is one of six people who are named as being killed in the battle. And so I want to link these two pieces together. Back in chapter 22, the Israelites are camped at Acacia. They are not yet in the promised land. They are across the river Jordan from the promised land. They can see the city of Jericho across the river. Now remember, there's more than a million of these people camped there. And they're waiting to cross over the Jordan River. And when the king of Moab sees all of these Israelites, and when he learns what's happened to his neighbors, the Amorites, when they sent armies against the Israelites, he's scared. He knows that he's not powerful enough to defeat the Israelites in battle, even though the Israelites are not looking for a fight. They just want to pass through. They just want to be left alone. And so the king of Moab forms an alliance with the Midianites, and together they send for Balaam, the freelance prophet, who lives over in Mesopotamia, and the Midianites and the Moabites offer Balaam lots and lots of money to put a curse on the Israelites so that they can defeat the Israelites in battle. But each time Balaam tries to curse Israel, instead of curses coming out of his mouth, he can only produce blessings. It's kind of a funny scene, except for Balaam, who doesn't get paid, because he doesn't utter the curse. So that's Balaam's story, but it doesn't end there because while the Moabite-Midianite coalition does not defeat Israel in battle, Balaam sticks around. He remains in the territory, and he uses the Midianite women to corrupt Israel internally by introducing Baal worship and sexual practices associated with the Baal temple among the Israelite men. They can't beat them in battle. Well, let's just mess them up culturally, internally. And the men fall for it big time. Sexual and religious promiscuity 
then alienate the Israelite men from God, and the result is a plague that kills 24,000 Israelites. Unlike Baal, Yahweh is a jealous God. Yahweh refuses to be one God among our pantheon of gods. God Almighty, the Father of Jesus Christ, does not share the stage with any other gods. As Christians, we cannot have a Native American dream catcher dangling from our rearview mirror or a lucky Buddha sitting on our kitchen counter or a deck of tarot cards tucked into our desk drawer or a Gaia is my mother bumper sticker on our Toyota Prius. We can't be reading our Bibles and our horoscopes and still call ourselves Christians. Because God is a jealous God. And if you think that's just, you know, the old mean God of the Old Testament, just Yahweh who's jealous, then you haven't been listening to Jesus who says, if you come to me but will not leave your family, you cannot be my follower. You must love me more than your father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Why is that? Because if we don't cling to God exclusively, then we don't cling to God at all. Jesus says that marriage is an earthly image of our relationship with God in the same way that our marriage relationship is exclusive. Our relationship with God also must exclude anyone and anything or any idea and any party and any nation that requires of us the attention that God alone deserves. Pagans, of course, are very comfortable with religious promiscuity. They don't mind if you have other gods. They're also comfortable with sexual promiscuity. The more sex, the better. And this religious promiscuity and sexual promiscuity, in fact, go together. And the Israelites learn a hard lesson in Numbers chapter 25 when they start fooling around with the Midianite women and with Baal, the Midianite god. The result was a plague that resulted in the death of 24,000 Israelites. And the plague only comes to an end when Phinehas, the high priest, kills Zimri and Cosby. We talked about that several weeks ago, and then we had to revisit that story a couple of weeks ago. What we see in Numbers chapter 31 with the destruction of the Midianites is the completion of the judgment that began back in chapter 25. Because the Midianites sought not only to destroy the Israelites on the battlefield, which they had hoped to accomplish through the curses of Balaam, but then they sought to destroy the Israelites by alienating them from their God, by seducing them into Baal worship and into sexual promiscuity. God's judgment against them is unusually severe. All right, that's some background. Now, I want to suggest some theological guardrails. I've had an unusually difficult time uh, writing this sermon this week because the issues are complex. No sermon is ever easy, but this one has caused me an unusual amount of grief. So what I want to do now in the remaining time, and I know that we're going to be over time, is I want to offer three guidelines or guardrails relative to this chapter. 
And because what is going on in this chapter is actually repeated many, many places in the Bible, there are some general principles here that are going to apply to other difficult passages in Scripture. For example, the moral outrage that we feel when we hear about God destroying the Midianite race is actually the same outrage that we feel when we read about Jesus destroying a fig tree that just didn't have figs at the wrong time of year anyway. There are many, many passages in the Bible where it seems like God does not live up to our moral standards and we find ourselves in a bind. Do we reject God and hold on to our moral standards? You know, I can't believe in a God who doesn't live up to my moral standards. I can't believe in a God who would commit genocide or I can't believe in a God who curses fig trees. That's one solution. Or do we reject the Bible and keep our God? Well, you know, the Bible was just written by a bunch of primitive people a long time ago. It's not really the word of God. It was their best attempt. We're much more advanced now. We've got a clearer idea of what God is saying. Those are two errors that I want to avoid. And I want to do that by providing three statements that will serve as guardrails to keep us out of, the, out of two opposing ditches. The ditch of atheism on the one side, which denies the existence of God, or the ditch of theological liberalism, which rejects the authority of Scripture. So here are my three statements. We'll see how we do. Number one, Christians do not have holy wars. There are no Christian holy wars. Number two, Christians receive the Bible as the word of God. And number three, Christians, Christians let God be God. So first, Christians do not have holy wars. The war against the Midianites was a holy war. It was a war initiated by God as a judgment against a people who had threatened the existence of the nation of Israel. It was God's intent, uh, and the nation of Israel served as God's instrument uh, for the blessing of the whole world. Through the nation of Israel, God reveals himself and his law to the whole world. And the value of that revelation is infinite. Through the nation of Israel, God also provided Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the church. The value of that sacrifice is infinite. And thus a holy war is warranted when the very existence of the nation of Israel was at stake. If Balaam had succeeded, Israel would have disappeared. And there would have been no Jesus, and we would not be here this morning. The price for presenting, preventing that kind of disaster was extremely high. It was the price of a holy war that resulted in the destruction of all of the Midianites. But, while that was a holy war, for us as Christians... There are no holy wars, at least not holy wars prosecuted by Christians. And that's because the citizenship of a Christian is not in this world. We are members of a heavenly 
kingdom. And we're just passing through this world. You remember what Jesus said at his trial before Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight for me. Now, there were some people at that time who thought that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and that the kingdom of Israel would again be established and be set free. They were hoping that Jesus would start a holy war, but those people misunderstood what Jesus was doing, and ultimately they rejected who Jesus revealed himself to be. Judas might have been one of those people who had expected Jesus to become the one who would start the war. The Crusaders in the Middle Ages made the same mistake. They thought that it was their business as Christians to recapture Jerusalem, which had fallen under the control of the Muslims. But they were wrong, and they did more injury to the work of the church than a thousand devils. Part of the animosity between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church is the result of the Crusades. Catholic Crusaders came in from the West, and they were not welcomed by Christians already living in the East. And so the Crusaders killed not only Muslims, but also Orthodox Christians, all because they had a false idea about holy war. So-called Christian nationalists, who have attracted attention recently, also are mistaken. God has not called on the church to set up a kingdom in this world because this world is passing away. Anyone who is seeking power in this world is not doing the work of God. One day Jesus will return and he will rule forever as king. But it won't be Christian nationalists who put him on the throne or get him elected. Jesus will fight his own battle. And the world that we know will be burnt to a crisp and a new world will be created where God and his church will live forever. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world and that means any kingdom in this world, even the kingdom that you might love best, is not the kingdom of Jesus. Guardrail number one, Christians do not have holy wars. Guardrail number two, Christians receive the Bible as the word of God. And by the Bible, I mean the whole Bible. There are three basic strategies that pastors use in selecting the passages that they preach from week to week. I've talked about this in the past from this pulpit. The three are what I call preacher's choice. The second is lectionary, and the third is lectio continua. The first strategy, preacher's choice, the preacher has some topic in mind that he wants to talk about. Maybe marriage or prayer or overcoming adversity or money management. And then he uses his concordance or Google to find the passages in the Bible that talk about that topic. Okay, that's called preacher's choice. When I was an intern at Union Tabernacle in Kensington, there was a, a youth worker there. He hadn't been to seminary, but he wanted to preach, and he asked me to help. So I asked him, what scripture was he thinking of preaching on? And he said, oh, I don't know what scripture, but I know what I want to say. I was hoping that you could help me find some verses. In other words... The preacher has some message he wants to deliver, and then he goes rooting around in the Bible for the verses that will support his message. I hope you see the problem with that. 
Because the preacher isn't preaching the Bible, he's preaching himself. He's got an idea in his head, and he wants you to believe that idea. And he goes looking around in the Bible the way bad public speakers go looking around in Bartlett's quotation for some pithy verses to string together to support his idea. Preacher's choice makes the word of God subservient to the whims of the preacher, and that is not okay for Christians. That's sub-Christian preaching. If you... Go to a church that preaches that way. Go there one week and then go looking for another church, okay? You will not be fed the word of God if that's the strategy of the preacher in that church, if preacher's choice is their method. The second method is lectionary. The the lectionary is a a calendar of scriptures, uh, and it takes you through most of the Bible on a three-year cycle. Every Roman Catholic church and many of the mainline Protestant churches follow the, uh, the lectionary. Uh, the lectionary gospel reading, uh, for example, this morning is Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And if you go to a Catholic church anywhere in the world this morning, they will likely be preaching on, on that passage. Now, the lectionary is not a bad idea. It avoids the problem of preacher's choice preaching. But there is one big problem, and that problem is is that the lectionary does not contain the whole Bible. For example, Numbers 31 does not show up in the revised common lectionary. And that means that a church that uses that system will never hear a sermon on that passage. And that raises a very serious question. If all scripture is God-breathed and useful to the church, as we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, what person or what church committee would have the temerity to say, this passage can stay, but that one we can skip? I'm not that brave. The lectionary creates a canon within a canon, and that's not okay. That is sub-Christian. We are called to preach the whole counsel of God. We are told that all of Scripture is God-breathed, and we use the whole of the Bible to interpret itself. We interpret passages against passages, and so if we treat some part of the Bible as less than the Word of God, then we find ourselves actually unable to hear the Word of God, because you cannot understand Jesus if you don't understand numbers. And the Sermon on the Mount doesn't make any sense if we haven't received the word of God from Mount Sinai. Now the third method of selecting what passage to preach is called Lectio Continua. That sounds good because it's in Latin, but it just means continuous reading. In other words, the whole Bible is preached through continuously, one passage right after the other. When John Calvin was in Geneva He preached every day of the week, and he traveled from one church to the other in the city, from pulpit to pulpit, and on each pulpit, uh, he would walk in, and there would be a Bible on the pulpit, and he would just open the Bible up to where they had left off the previous week, read the next passage, and then preach it. That's what we do here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church. We preach straight through whole books of the Bible at a time. Now there's a difficulty with that. Because the difficulty with that 
is you have to preach weird things like Numbers chapter 31. Lectionary preachers skip it. Preachers, choice preachers, probably would never choose this passage in a million sermons because it doesn't tell you how to be beautiful or successful. As Christians, however, we need to receive the whole Bible as the Word of God because, now think about this, I need you to put on your brains and not let your brains be idling now. If the Bible is not the Word of God, what is? If you do not receive the Bible as the Word of God, how would you detect what the Word of God is? How would you find it? How would you discern it? If the Bible is not the Word of God, what is? If I do not trust the Bible to tell me everything that I need to know for my salvation, then where do I turn? Well, the answer to the question is, if you haven't arrived at it already, is yourself. That's the only other place that you can turn. You end up becoming the author of your own private little scripture. And your private little scripture is built up from Facebook memes that you've read and Hollywood movies that you've watched and little snippets that you've learned in philosophy class and clever things that you heard on television talk shows. You just gather all that stuff together and you make your own word of God. That's the only other option that you have. We all believe something. We can choose to believe the Bible or we can choose to believe ourselves. Guardrail number two. Christians receive the Bible as the word of God. Guardrail number three. Christians let God be God. From a philosophical and from a logical point of view, and this is where the argument went with Dr. Moshe Roche the other night, there either is a God or there isn't. And if there is a God, he's outside of the universe. And if there is a God who created the entire universe, it would be exceedingly strange if he behaved and thought the same way that we do inside of the universe. A God who thinks and acts the way we think and act is not a God at all. Now, pagan gods are that way because pagan gods are really just superheroes. Okay, they got special powers. And they're not really any different from any other created being. Also, while God gave a law to us, a law which prohibits things like genocide, let's be clear about that. Okay, what, what happens to the Midianites is not permissible even under the Torah law. Okay, so it, what's happened there is a command that's actually in contravention of the given law. While God gives a law to us, a law which prohibits things like genocide and holy war and cursing fig trees, that's also not permissible. God himself is not subject to that law. And all of God's actions 
in this world have to be understood as resolving into some kind of holy and beautiful harmony at a level that we who are inside the universe cannot understand. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. If they were, he wouldn't be God. And we need to learn to let God be God. He's weird. He's different from us. Think for a moment of Job. You all know the story of Job. Job, by the way, may be the oldest surviving strand of the Old Testament, maybe the oldest story that's present in the Old Testament. You know how this man suffered. He was a good man. He, he, he's not being punished for his sins, and he suffers terribly. By every human standard, what happened to Job was a cruel joke. If you or I were to toy with a human life the way that God toys with Job, we would be moral monsters. And yet, when Job, who never doubts God, who never turns his back on God, when Job confronts God to challenge God and to say to God, Hey, what are you doing? How dare you do this to me? You remember God's response. And by the way, Job is within his rights to challenge God about this stuff. It's okay. You can challenge God. He's big. He can deal with you. But God's response to Job is very sobering. He says, where were you when I made the world? We need to let God be God. That doesn't mean we understand everything. That doesn't mean that we're allowed to do the thing that God does. That doesn't mean that God has to give us all of the answers. When we're confronted with stories like Numbers 31, it is right for us to be horrified. The death of even one person is horrible, much less the death of thousands, including children. But in the face of these horrors, I think our response needs to be reverent and respectful awe. We need to have the humility to say, I don't understand, but I know that God is God and that his ways are above my ways. I need to have the humility to approach the scriptures as the word of God, as speaking the truth and not speaking some kind of allegory that I need to explain away, as speaking the mind of God and not speaking the mind of confused ancient people about God. One of the names for God in the Bible, I love this name, we don't use it enough, is Isaac's fear. Wow. Who's your God? Oh, Isaac's fear is my God. To encounter the creator of the universe, even though he is good and beautiful and kind, to encounter the creator of the universe is a fearsome thing. He's working at a level that we just can't understand. He's handling amounts of power that are greater than the entire cosmos. And yet, he is working in our lives individually. And the only way we can approach him is in humility. Numbers 31 is a very humbling story. It's the story of the God of the universe destroying thousands of people to preserve a little band of nomads that one day 
would bless billions of people. The people who were destroyed suffered because of their own sins. God is not unjust. But the people who were blessed, which includes us, received a favor from God that we had no right to expect. If the Midianites had not been wiped out, If the Israelites had fallen into depravity and idolatry, the hope of the world would have been extinguished. So we thank God for his fearsome, terrible mercy, for his intervention in the history of the world at this grand scale. And we have to ask him to cultivate in us a reverent fear of his transcendent majesty. Let us pray. Lord God, you are God, and we worship you this day. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in the thoughts of your people. Lord, teach us to trust you like children. May we not lean unto our own understanding. Thank you for loving us and for loving this world. Thank you for being willing to do big things for little people. Amen. Amen.